Welcome back to the Doggy Juice Pod, changing the way you think as a sports better. This is episode number 50, The Big 5 0, Thursday, July 25th, 2019. That's right, the 50th episode. It's a milestone for us here at the Doggy Juice Pod headquarters. We've come a long way since episode one, right after Labor Day weekend last September, and it's been an incredible year. Sports betting has been legalized here in Illinois and in neighboring Indiana and Iowa, among other states. And now here we are, episode number 50, the golden episode. It's great to be back here after a little more than a month since our last episode. Since it's the least busy time of the sports calendar year, I thought it was the perfect time to take a little break and focus and prepare more for the upcoming season. I actually got away on a pretty epic road trip out to the mountains at the end of last month. Um, Hit up seven different states, five different national parks. It was really fun. But I've also got some great news to share with all of you. I'm pleased to announce that this week I officially joined... Bet Chicago as a writer on their editorial staff. For those who don't know, Bet Chicago launched in June of last year, and they provide sports betting news, odds, and insights, and even some predictions. And they're going to have a presence in other states, including right next door with Bet Indiana. And I'm I'm a big believer in what Bet Chicago is building, and I'm very excited to join their team and get going. So be sure to check out uh, the website betchicago.com and give them a follow on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Um, Bet Chicago one is the Twitter handle, the number one. Um, and also be on the lookout for some of my work coming out on their platform soon. As I've been saying, these are incredibly exciting times for the sports betting space, not only here in America where sports betting is being legalized state by state, but also locally here in Chicago as the city braces for legalized betting in the coming months. So seeing that this is the 50th episode of the Doggy Juice Pod, And since football season prep work is in full swing now and we're all preparing for another full season of finding value on the betting boards, I figured that this episode would be a perfect time to come full circle and revisit our topic from episode one, the very first episode of the Doggy Juice pod from last September. And that is the official Doggy Juice sports betting Ten Commandments. I think it's important to revisit this topic because... Those are the pillars that a successful long-term sports better must build around. And if you follow the Doggy Juice Sports Betting Ten Commandments, you will put yourself in the best possible situation to succeed in the 2019-2020 season that's about to begin. So without further ado, let's jump into episode number 50 of the Doggy Juice Pod, starting with some quick hitters. New York took its first legal sports bet early last week. Rivers Casino in Schnickety, New York, had its grand opening ceremony last week. Um, in, that's in upstate New York, just outside of Albany. And the Rivers Sportsbook became the first shop in the state to offer bets, but a few more locations are opening up in upcoming weeks. Um, the state of New York is still stuck in limbo a bit, though, because right now sports betting is limited to in-person wagers at the upstate casinos and proponents to change their legislation to include mobile betting were unable to clean up existing law uh, in their most recent effort, mainly because of opposition from Governor Andrew Cuomo. But getting mobile sports betting done in New York is a key objective for many lawmakers in next year's legislative session, and I think once they see 
how much New Jersey and how much Pennsylvania, who just went live with their mobile in just the past few days, how much those states are making from their mobile-based wagering, it will help light a fire under the ass of some legislators there to get it done. So can you imagine how high the handle will be in New York State once people in New York City can bet from their phones? Madon. North Carolina became the next state to legalize sports betting last week as their state legislature passed a bill 10 days ago that's still awaiting the governor's signature, but it's expected to be signed because the bill had bipartisan support. And that means sports betting is live in 11 states now, but there are enabling laws that have been passed in six other states and the District of Columbia, and uh, more states will be joining the fold soon. So, Quickly, where do we stand here in Illinois and in the neighboring states of Indiana and Iowa? All three of those states, including ours here in Illinois, um, sports betting's been legalized in those states. Um, It's been a while since we've done one of these updates, but here in Illinois, Governor Pritzker finally signed Senate Bill 690, the gaming package that included legalized sports betting. He signed that on June 29th, and there's still a few things that need to happen here in Illinois before we're able to go make some bets. Um, right now, the rules and regulations are being crafted, and then licenses still have to be rewarded or awarded to uh, to operators, and then a trial testing period has to go down. So that's going to take a while, and obviously it's Illinois we're talking about here. So from what I'm hearing, early 2020 is the best estimate for sports betting to go live here in Illinois with the Super Bowl next February, uh, the most realistic goal. But it's a different story in Iowa and Indiana next door. Iowa is expected to go live by the start of college football season at the end of next month. And from what I'm hearing out of Indiana, there's still the hope to go live by September 1st to be ready for NFL Week 1. But a more realistic guess is that Indiana will go live a few weeks into the, the football season. But either way, these are incredibly exciting times for legalized sports betting. All right, so... Now it's time to revisit our topic from the very first Doggy Juice podcast episode at the beginning of last September as we prepare to embark on another season of Beating the Betting Boards. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to reintroduce you to the official Doggy Juice Sports Betting Ten Commandments. Thou shall have a bankroll. This is the granddaddy of them all. The one pillar that all of sports betting is built upon, and that is your bankroll. When you strip all this down to the dry bones and remove all the outside noise, the team ratings, the player ratings, breaking news, injuries, tangibles, weather, matchups, trends, whatever, all that sports betting really comes down to is your bankroll. How much money you win versus how much money you lose. It's that simple. And that's why this is the first and most important of the Sports Betting Ten Commandments, the net result of the rest of all of them at the end of the day. And it's all about managing your bankroll in a way that optimizes your chances of winning the optimal amount of money. All other decisions you make, good or bad, will directly impact your bankroll. So you would think that this is the simplest rule to adhere by and the easiest concept to grasp, yet... Some of the very best sports handicappers out there mess this one up regularly. It's actually surprising how many smart, intelligent, plus EV bettors out there overbet on a game or allocate too many resources into one position. And 
So like some of even the most well-seasoned, finessed cappers out there still lose because they can't manage their bankroll. And it actually makes sense if you think about it, since professional sports betting itself is an endeavor that usually gravitates more towards degenerates and individuals with extreme personalities, guys who like the sweat and like the risk. And those are the same types of people who go broke or get in trouble. And the, the key is, to the best of your abilities, to have an established bankroll that you are willing to lose... And having a clear-cut bankroll will help inform all of your future decisions. Just like in real life, and even more, I would argue, um, money management and sports betting is essential. And having a, a clear and established bankroll to work with is the number one common denominator for any professional sports better who wins in the long term. Two, thou shall have a unit size. Your unit size connects directly to your bankroll. It should be a very small percentage of your overall bankroll, and it serves as your typical bet size on standard wagers. So your unit size should be no more than 1% to 2% of your total bankroll. Variance in sports betting is something that you just have to embrace, and if you make enough bets over time, the laws of math will take over, and you will have periods of sustained losing, and you will have periods of sustained winning. It's just what happens, even to the very best of us. The law of large numbers doesn't lie. So with those inevitable swings that will happen in mind, you don't want to take a position on any one game or outcome within a game that is too large and uh, it's too big of a proportion of your bankroll. So different people have different opinions on what percentage of your bankroll should constitute one betting unit, but the normal accepted practice is 1-2% to of your bankroll at most. So if you have a bankroll of $1,000, your typical bet size um, your typical unit size should be 10 to $20. If your bankroll is $5,000, then your typical unit size should be in the $50 to $100 range at most. So some smart minds out there advocate for an even more conservative approach when determining a standard unit size, like you know 0.5 to 1% of your bankroll. And I think I'm more in line with that way of thinking, especially after being in this racket for a while and being desensitized to the good and bad streaks that are just going to come over the course of making hundreds and thousands of bets. It's just going to happen. So what I like to think of is this. Even when I find my very best edges or perceived edges in the betting market, the very best ones, it's still incredibly rare to find more than a 5 to 10% edge when making that bet at the standard minus 110 VIG. And when you keep that in mind, you realize that when you make that, when you have that type of edge at best, you have a 40 to 45% chance of losing that bet. That's right. Even the very best of best bets at minus 110, you have a 40 to 45% chance of losing the bet. So with that in mind, reminding yourself of that over time, especially after those wins that seem so easy and those losses that seem so brutal and unfair, I think it really helps you in, when you're determining what your standard bet size should be. So there's also the Kelly criterion, which basically says you should stake, um, or your stake should be proportional to the perceived edge. And this is an advanced concept. I won't really get into it too much right now, but basically you see a lot of you know, handicappers and touts out there saying that they have a one-star play or a two-star play and a three-star play. And that system, usually you can uh, differentiate that from the four-star, five-star, six-star theory, which I subscribe more to. Um, the one, two, three guys, you know, you're betting double your unit and triple your unit on the three-star plays. Um, and that's you know just a, a lot to bet on one position. The four, five, six theory means you know you're betting your standard unit size, and you know the and five would be you know 
So like, let's say $100 is your unit size. That's a four-star play. A five-star play would be $125, and a six-star play would be $150. So, and that will be as much as you would bet uh, based off of your perceived edge and, and the Kelly criteria. And so I'm more of a subscriber to that. Um, but you have to figure out what works for you. But once you have your, your typical bet unit size um, in place, then you can kind of work from there and maybe go a little bit more than a unit on the plays that you think you have more of an edge on. So in short, the thing I like to remind myself of when I make a particular wager is how do I expect this to play out if I made this bet 100 times? So yes, betting something with a few percentage points of edge is nice, and that's what I try to do every time. But even then, I'm expecting to come out on top roughly 55 of those 100 times that I make that wager um, at minus 110 at best. So in those rare cases when I have a monster perceived edge and betting uh, plus EV at minus 110, I'm still going to lose that bet 40 to 45 out of those 100 times. And when you get in that mindset, it really helps to set you free. Three, thou shall have multiple outs. If you want to win in the long term in sports betting, then in my opinion, this is the most underrated way to go about doing it. And if there's only one piece of advice that I can offer to you that you can put into play immediately, like right now, right when you're done listening to this podcast, that will yield you the biggest impact right away, this is it. I like to stress the market aspect of sports betting because in reality, that's all it is. And as the legendary odds maker Jimmy Vaccaro likes to say, Joe's bet teams and pros bet numbers. That's really all it comes down to. So... Even if you're a novice better who doesn't know how to find value in the numbers and still wants to bet a team, having multiple outs and finding the best number will still give them a massive edge on someone in the same shoes but only bets at one place. Think about it. If you are betting only at one shop and you're playing whatever number they're giving you, that's just what happens. You're playing whatever number they're giving you. You aren't shopping around. You aren't looking for that extra half point and that extra point that might be out there elsewhere. You're settling for what is given to you. And then think about all those times in the past when you've said, I can't believe how close that line is. I can't believe how sharp the books were on setting that number because it fell right on it. And when you think about you know, a bell curve from that point of view, even one point up or one point down from where the line is set are the two next most likely results according to the betting market. So if you can find one out that allows you to get two or three of those most likely results, well, another one only allows you to get one of them. What, you know, what the line is, that can make all the difference, and it, it does in the long run. So it's all about getting the best number. I can't tell you how many times this has come into play for me personally. If you do a little exercise and write down your plays for a few weeks and then go back weeks later and, and look at the grading of all of them, you're going to notice how many won or lost by the hook or by one single point, and you'll be amazed by it. So in sports betting, even the best pros out there only win about one more bet out of 20 in the long run, as opposed to some random Joe on the street who's flipping coins and playing games and winning 50% of them. It sounds simple, but that really is the difference over time, that 1 in 20. It's a game of small margins. So if you're going to win that extra one bet out of 20 in the long run, you absolutely need to give yourself as many outs as possible in order to get the best number possible. So for me, I'm stubborn about it, actually. If I miss a number on a game, then I know it's just there. And if I can't find it elsewhere, more often than not, I refuse to take the new number, even if it's just a fraction worse, just out of principle. There, there are going to be so many more damn betting opportunities out there in the near future to take advantage of, so I'm not going to take a number that, um, that I could have gotten a little bit earlier. I mean, obviously, there's exceptions to that. You know, if you still have an edge, you still bet it, but for less. But um, sometimes, you know, if it, the number moves, I'm not going to, like, take a worse number that I could have just gotten elsewhere. 
Um, so at the bare minimum, I advise you to get at least two outs, but really you should have at least three, ideally one sharper book and one more square book to help give you the best chance of getting the best number on any given play. For thou shalt only bet with plus EV. This is easily the most complicated of the Doggy Juice Sports Betting Ten Commandments and the most difficult one to put into practice. After all, if it was easy, then everyone would be doing it and everyone doesn't win in sports betting. That's just not the way the game works. So, But this is right up there in the most important concepts to follow, and that is only betting with positive expected value on that individual bet alone in a vacuum. So take out all the noise and ask yourself before placing the bet, will I do better than just breaking even if I place this bet 100 times separately in a vacuum? Now, what is expected value? And I'm not a math nerd by any means, so I'm going to simplify this formula for you, but it's the only formula you really need to know. And expected value is your probability of winning multiplied by the amount won per bet minus the probability of losing multiplied by the amount lost per bet. So how does one find positive EV bets? Well, that is the challenge, my friends, and that is the ultimate challenge and why so many uh, out there pour over line moves and changes in market conditions around the clock. Helping you find plus EV is one of the main goals of this podcast. It's a lifelong endeavor that I've personally embarked on. And um, I think it's an important thing to say um, that the best bets you make are often the ones that you don't make. It's a rather simple concept, but it's very important when you think about it. If you make a bet to win $100 at minus 110, then you collect $100 if the bet wins. And you're out $110 if the bet loses. So as a result, it just stands to reason that it's better to not lose $110 than it is to win $100. Yes, that would be a it's a $10 difference, but having success in sports betting is all about accumulating small edges over time to build your bankroll. So you better believe that all those small individual $10, uh, $10 bets that you save, those add up over time. So it's, it's literally the difference between winning and losing long term. So just think to yourself before you make a bet, plus EV or pass. Five, thou shall not buy points. The points are not worth the price that you are paying. This all comes down to math, and the amount that a given half point or point is actually worth is almost always, without fail, much less than what you are paying for when you buy up that half point or buy the hook. Uh, doing so will increase your VIG, and you will thus have to win that bet a higher percentage of the time than if you did not buy the hook at all. So, as we know, if you need to win a bet at minus 110, you know, if you're laying the standard minus 110 VIG, you have to win 52.38% of the time to break even. When you buy that half point and lay minus 120 instead of minus 110, all of a sudden you have to win that bet 54.5% of the time. And as we know, that's a huge difference, especially over the long run. So notice how this is different than getting the best number. When you buy points, you're doing just that. You're buying those points. So you know, if one guy says, oh, I, I have plus 7 on a game, the other guy says, oh, yeah, I got plus 7 too, but it's at minus 120. That's different. That's a lot different because the guy who's laying the minus 120 has to win that bet more times than the guy who laid minus 110 over time, and that is the difference. So um, they, when you buy points, they come at a cost, and they're almost always not even close to being worth the price you're paying. There are exceptions, though. I mean, I don't want to be too lame with these, these Ten Commandments, especially these restrictive ones, but um, 
there are exceptions with buying on to key numbers, um, like buying on to three or seven in the NFL or college football, but even that's almost always not worth the price you're paying either when you do that. Sometimes it makes sense to, um, but most of the time it does not. Um, it, I guess like one situation where it might make more sense is if it's a lower total game with lower expected variance, um, the relative value of points become uh, more valuable. So then, you know, buying it at a similar price onto a key number in that situation could make sense, but usually it does not. Six, thou shall not do parlays. I know, I know. Doggy juice. You're taking all the fun out of betting, you jag off. I get it. Part of the big-time appeal of sports betting is people's infatuation with the idea of risking a little to win a lot. It's the lottery mentality that has been ground into us and our fathers before us. And I get it. That's what appealed to me, too, at the beginning. And parlays are fun. But if you are serious about winning in sports betting in the long run, then parlays are unfortunately something that you just need to quit cold turkey. Because simply put, the payouts on parlays are nowhere near the true odds that you should be getting on your wager. So let me explain with a little example that I used in the very first Doggy Juice Pod episode. I'm going to try and dumb this down even more because we all hate math. But let's say you're a random grandma and you want to put down some coin on the Bears game coming up. Um, But according to your calculations, you have a 50% chance of winning your bet. And Let's say a random grandma flipping coins um, does have a 50% chance of winning her bet um, at minus 110. Um, let's just assume that moving forward, because I guess any random Joe off the street could flip a coin and hit 50% and lose in the long run, slowly, if you're betting smart with the unit size. But let's say the grandma's betting uh, with a 50% chance to win. And if she wants to make $100 bet, the odds are 50-50 whether she's going to lose uh, $110, and they're 50-50 and whether or not she's going to win $100. So instead... You know, she decides, hey, I'm going to do a five-team parlay instead because you can risk the same amount but win $2,000, you know, risk the $100 but win $2,000 if all five bets come in. And, you know, instead of just winning 100 bucks, if all five come on one play, if, if all five come in, you win 2000 bucks. It's a 20-to-1 payout on five-teamers. Sounds great, right? Hold on. For a five-teamer, five legs at 50% chance each, and that's the other assumption here is that you have a 50% chance on each bet, um, when you do that, you multiply, you know, 0.5 times 0.5 times 0.5 times 0.5 times 0.5. That equals 0.03125 or 3.125%. So let's use our expected value formula. And your expected payout um, is 0.03125. You multiply that by 2,000, the amount you expect to win, minus the difference between the 0.01 or 0.03125 so that's 0.96875 you multiply that by 100 which is the money you would lose and that simplifies to 62.5 minus 96.875 which comes out to minus 34.375 so in other words ladies and gentlemen for every $100 you bet on a parlay in that situation you can expect to lose $34 and 38 cents instead of your standard expected loss of nine dollars and nine cents for a standard single bet at a hundred dollars and minus 110 juice with a 50 percent chance of winning so it just shows you right there it's almost four times the amount of money lost per 100 dollars. so if you're doing enough parlays over the time it's going to seem like you're you know 
not giving as much vig, but let me tell you, you are giving away way too much. So I'm happy to explain this one in further detail and break down the numbers even more with people if you have questions, but parlays are the enemy to winning in sports betting long term. So your bookies might as well be wearing ski masks when, when you do parlays with them. As you can see, it involves actually risking a lot more, but with a lower probability of winning. So like all exceptions or like all rules, there can be exceptions. And there is an exception here, and that's correlated parlays. And they're very rare, uh, exceedingly rare these days. Usually sports books are, have wisened up to them and don't even allow them to go through. But if you can get down on them, they're definitely plus EV. So an example of a correlated parlay would be um, a football game with a very low total and a very large underdog. So let's say... You know, let's say Georgia is hosting you know, some directional school. The directional school is 35-point underdog, but the total is, uh, let's say, you know, 48. So, obviously, the under and taking the points with the underdog is correlated because if the underdog is going to cover the game, um, chances are that it's going to be a lower-scoring game. Or if it's a lower-scoring game, chances increase heavily that the underdog is going to cover. So that's a definite example of a correlated parlay, and it's definitely a, a bet that most operators will not even let you to th- uh, think about placing with them. Um, but if you can find situations like that uh, where you can get down on a correlated parlay and give yourself plus EV, then go for it. But that is a very rare situation. And in the end, uh, parlays are highway robbery for sports books, And unfortunately, Parlays are a big and ever-present nemesis in your long-term quest to build your bankroll. It sucks, I get it. 7. Thou shall not do teasers. I know, again with the Mr. No Fun, but also again, when you're doing teasers, you are paying for the numbers and you are paying too much for them. View teasers as buying points because that's exactly what you're doing, only this time it's multiple points. The numbers, not, or, you know, they're not worth what you're paying for them. It's especially true in high-variance games like college football games with high totals, for example. So doing teasers in that situation is just totally negative EV um, and just the thing you want to avoid doing. But like most rules, there are exceptions here too, and the main one is teasing through key numbers in football, namely the NFL, especially in games with uh, lower totals. So it makes sense if you think about it. A game that is projected to be lower scoring thus has lower variability because there's a smaller range of potential outcomes, and thus the value of each point increases. So the value of a point is worth more, obviously, in a game with a total of 37, you know, between like you know two very high-powered defenses than it is in a game totaled at 59, like you know, like the Rams and the Chiefs or something like that. So if you're paying the same price for those points. Um, you know, then it makes sense you know, if, if you can tease on a lower total game through key numbers. So an example is teasing through, uh, doing a two-point teaser, teasing through two games through the key numbers of three and seven um, in games with low totals. However, books have wisened up to this, and they're now increasing their VIG on these teasers, i.e. the six-point NFL teasers that used to be minus 110 are now incredibly rare to find most books have moved to minus 120 or even higher on those with a select few at minus 115 and the rare minus 110 so again think back to the concept of having to win more times out of 100 making the same bet in order to break even and how many more teasers you will therefore have to win when laying more vig like minus 120 on those so for me i will still do a two team six point teaser on lower totaled nfl games when i can cross through the key numbers of three and seven and when I'm laying minus 110. Otherwise, 
I'm staying away from teasers. Eight, thou shall not blindly hedge. So this is an interesting concept that actually caused much debate in the sports betting community earlier last month when the St. Louis Blues better who put $400 down on his hometown team to win the Stanley Cup at 250 to 1 odds to win $100,000 when that story came into play. And there's there's no clear-cut answer on whether or not you should hedge any given position. And your optimal decision there depends on your circumstance and a variety of other factors. But if you are trying to win in sports betting in the long run, here's one rule that you should abide by. Do not hedge your position in-game or any type of position unless that hedge is a bet that brings its own positive expectation of winning, a.k.a. your hedge bet is plus EV. So refer back to rule number four on only making a bet when that individual bet yields plus EV in a vacuum. Otherwise, you're just giving away precious VIG on the other side, and the book is cleaning up on both bets with the VIG. So don't give away that value. If you have an edge, then keep that edge and maximize your expected win. But as always, there are exceptions to, to all the rules. So um, there's exceptions to the to, to hedging, to, to not hedging uh, unless it's plus EV. And um, the first exception is if you overbet your initial position with the intent to hedge back later. And this is often done to open up middle positions or to minimize your initial risk um, when you bet more than you normally would have in the same situation. So this is definitely a more advanced concept, but here's a quick example. Let's say you put two units down instead of one unit on a game with the, you know, the positive expectation that the line would move a certain way. And when it does, you decide to play back a portion of your original bet on the other side. Maybe you'll play back a half a unit or one unit the other way. So let's say the Bears are playing the Rams and you put two units down on the Bears at minus two and a half with the intent to get off of some of it if the line moves up to three or higher. And then when it does, you play one unit back on the Rams at plus three and a half. And in that instance, you, you'd win both bets, three total units, if the game lands at three, Bears winning by three. And the most you can lose in that situation is one unit plus the VIG. And you have your one unit bet on a line that moved on the north side of three. And this is a very rare scenario, a dream scenario, scenario actually, because to have two point, minus two and a half on one side and plus three and a half on the other side in one game is it's really a dream. Um, but So remember, this is more of an advanced concept. But doing this is risky, and it opens yourself up to eating VIG on both sides. So tread carefully here. But there are situations where I play on both sides of the same game. It's actually something I do quite often. And there's nothing better than sitting back and just rooting for numbers to fall. So, you know, knowing full well that you can't really lose anything at all. But it's a lot easier said than done, obviously. The other exception to blindly hedging is if you are dealing with life-changing money. So kind of like the example of the St. Louis Blues Stanley Cup better, in which case it is still technically not the right thing to do to hedge, but it makes sense. Obviously, that came into play last month with the Blues better, who curiously didn't end up hedging at all, even though it was apparent that it was indeed life-changing money for him, and probably plus EV opportunities to hedge might have arose throughout that series, but he didn't do it, and he ended up uh, you know, coming out unscathed with that and won all the big money, but when it comes to hedging, it's just different strokes for different folks, and if you're trying to win in the long run, you should not blindly hedge but instead only hedge when the hedge itself is a play that's plus EV. Nine, thou shalt not tilt. This is an obvious one, but so much easier said than done, and it's a primary reason why 
sports books make their money. After all, we are human beings, and sports betting involves so much human emotion and pride. And when you let your emotion and pride get the best of you, you unfortunately can put yourself in situations that are going to be, or they're going to have a very negative impact on your bankroll. Um, like to say this, but uh, oftentimes Joe Public bets what he wants to see, and that can get you into trouble. And remember the law of large numbers: long winning streaks and long losing streaks are just going to happen. So accept that fact and bet accordingly. And don't be greedy. When you're winning, don't all of a sudden increase your unit size disproportionately and think you're invincible because, I hate to break it to you, you are not invincible. And winning 52.38% of your plays at standard minus 110 is what's needed to break even. So hitting at a 55% clip is the gold standard for professional sports bettors. And we're dealing with very small margins here when you consider all of that. So when you let your emotions get involved and when that impacts your bet size or whether you or not you decide to make a bet in the first place, then you're playing with fire. And months of grinding and scraping out edges and building bankroll slowly can be ruined with one bet or you know, one bad bet or one bad afternoon of betting. So even the very best handicap handicappers out there uh, fall victim to this. And it's it's a lot easier said than done, I understand that, but removing your emotion entirely and looking at everything from a purely objective overhead viewpoint will not only put you in the best possible position to optimize your bets and win in the long term, but it'll also help with your sanity. So no, there's no bad luck. No, the team didn't give up that pick six at the end just to screw you over. No, the basketball player didn't miss his free throw because you just have the worst luck ever. I hate to break it to you, but... What you want to happen doesn't matter. Once the bet's made, you can't do anything about it, so why worry so much? So it took me a long time to get over that one, but instead you should be looking for that next opportunity, and that's what successful bettors do. Once their chips are in, they know their money's in good, kind of like in poker terms. They remove their emotion from their betting, and they look at things from purely objective, analytical point of view, and then they're you know they're searching for their next value. They're searching for their next opportunity to fire on their next bet. So along those lines, you have to be... You have to be aware of things like gambler's fallacy, recency bias, confirmation bias. Obviously, gambler's fallacy is also known as do theory. So it's the belief that if something happens more frequently than normal during a given period, that it will happen less frequently in the future. Got to be aware of that one. Also, recency bias. I think that one's a big one. Most bettors only remember what they saw last. Uh, another big one is confirmation bias. I think this one's actually a really big one with a lot of people because you know they get tricked into thinking that they made the right play just because they won and that can get you into trouble so beware of thinking that you were right when in reality you had the wrong handicap and just got lucky and this happens to everybody very often if you go back and, and look at games and you know it's easy to think about all the bad things that happened to you but sometimes you just it's just human nature not to pay attention to the times you got lucky and the good things that happened to you so in the long run the bad beats are going to happen the bad bounces are going to occur but you're also going to get lucky whether you decide to notice it or not so Remove your emotion entirely, understand that you're in this for the long haul, if you are, and you're going to have those inevitable bad beats over time, and accept it and move on. So instead, you should spend your time trying to find plus EV bets to make. 10. Thou shall be willing to adapt. This is the final catch-all of the Doggy Juice Sports Betting 10 Commandments. The entire sports betting landscape is changing not only across America, but the entire world, but especially America. And new technology and innovations, they're all coming in, and that is completely changing the way we bet. Um, In-game wagering is huge in Europe and starting to pick up more steam here in the U.S. 
there's going to come a time very soon where um, in-game live betting overtakes pre-flop betting. Um, it's coming. It's not too distant future. Uh, mobile-based wagering is the way of the future as well. And there is going to be continually new ways to bet in new markets that present themselves. So simply thinking within the confines of laying a typical minus 110 line before a game starts, it's only going to be shortchanging yourself. So you have to be willing to adapt with the times. And you should always be seeking to find edges when they are when they're present. And the softest, most exploitable lines are often the edges you find in the derivative markets and in live wagering. So examples of these are, you know, betting a, a first half line where a particular advantage or edge is not properly reflected in the marketplace, or betting a point a player point prop that's too high or too low. Uh, another example involving live wagering is searching for certain tells at the beginning of games. You know, like a, a way a coach will call a certain game, or you know, little tip-offs that can give you clues on the way the game's going to unfold, and then exploiting a live wagering line that is screaming value um, at the price that you're looking at. Um, but not only all that, the sports themselves change. And in basketball, you know, it's all about the three-pointer now. In football, things change big time when the NFL uh, changed the rules back in 2010, aiming to protect quarterbacks and wide receivers. In baseball, teams are starting games with relievers by committee. And last year, positional players were out there pitching, and now we're all, you know, all we're seeing in baseball now is home runs, walks, and strikeouts. So, and plus the juice baseballs as well. So you can even argue that with, analytic, with analytics permeating sports uh, at different levels, I might add, um, sports in general has changed more in just the past few years than it has during any other uh, similar period in time. Player tracking data is becoming a big thing. It's easier to find. TV and media contracts are increasingly uh, increasing the overall size of the pie. Um, everything around us is changing, and in the end, we have to be continually willing to adapt with the times if we're going to win in sports betting in the long run. And I don't know about you, but that is something that I'm planning on doing. So if you follow rules number one to four and avoid numbers five to nine, then you're going to be on the path towards hitting at least 52.38% of your bets and actually succeeding in this endeavor. It's not easy, but it sure is fun. And winning is definitely fun. So that'll do it. Another revisiting of your official Doggy Juice Sports Betting Ten Commandments. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is going to do it for this very special episode of the Doggy Juice Pod. As I announced at the beginning, I'm very excited to be joining the team over at Bet Chicago. So be sure to give Bet Chicago a follow on social media and bookmark the Bet Chicago website so you can check out my work over there and the work of all the other talented guys over there. Um, and as always, give me a follow on Twitter and Instagram at Doggy Juice for best bets and for betting related news and information. We're right on the eve of the 2019-2020 season, so let's go get it. I'll be back next week as we will focus on college football and NFL preseason prep work as the season quickly approaches. Training camps are uh, they're underway now. At the end of this week, all teams are will have reported by the end of this week. So uh, those who put in the work and analyze and attack the market early can have a, a huge uh, leg over their competition. So hope you all have a great weekend, and I will talk to you all next week. Good luck on your bets. Doggy Juice out.